Steve Addison here for the Movements Podcast, the podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today, we're going to hear from Nathan Shank on the four fields of kingdom growth. Nathan is a practitioner in South Asia, where he's seen multiplying movements of disciples and churches. Nathan's had a huge influence on my thinking and practice. Hope he does the same for you. Yeah, well, we spent the last day and a half talking through kingdom process, kingdom agenda, what that looks like, what Christ was up to, and then ultimately what Paul was up to in, in following Christ's example and trying to pursue that reality as our key result there is how we would go about the same task of pursuing the kingdom. So one of the, the real starting places for us in our journey was course through a mentor Jeff Sundell who's here in the room was was the kingdom parables and really it's become an ethos within our organization to examine and understand there are principles in the kingdom that that Christ intended as if to say hey watch this among his disciples he's using those parables to cast vision to go out and pursue the kingdom agenda to really focus in on on what could carry a lasting impact and for that matter the potential of that kingdom so for us it began in the kingdom parables were just the reality and stewardships of the kingdom of God. How we as agents of the kingdom go about uh, the work of the kingdom. And for that matter, if, if any one of you guys, you just take out your calendar, circle a date in the next month, and pick one of the four Gospels. Read through that Gospel, and I, I believe, I think you will see that as a description of what Jesus was up to, Jesus is consistently entering new fields, sowing the seed of the Gospel message, Nurturing the new growth of that seed as the Spirit gives life. Cutting and bundling, so to speak. Forming community. I'm one with the Matthew 16 hammer, honestly, sledgehammer. Christ was in fact planting churches. He, I will build my church in the kingdom of hell and I stand against it. The reason we don't consider it that way, honestly, is because of the pace. Jesus was in 170 different villages of Galilee within two and a half years. He's constantly on the move. Entering new villages, sowing seed, nurturing new growth forming community, and then ultimately reproducing leaders who could do the same thing. In my mind, those five stewardships, those five tasks are what Christ set his hand to. The reality is we could circle another date on the calendar, go through the book of Acts, the journeys of Paul, and you know what you'd find him doing? Engaging new fields, sowing the seed, nurturing new growth, cutting and bundling that harvest into New Testament churches, and multiplying leaders who could do the same things. To the end that, just as Jesus said in Matthew 17, before the cross of a finished work, I have revealed those to you, those you gave me. He entered, he engaged the right people. Revealed the Father, that's gospel. I have, uh, they have obeyed your word, that's discipleship. I pray that they might be one, John 17, that's, that's formation of community. And for that matter, not only to pray for them, but for also those who would believe through his message. There it is again as a bookend in Jesus' ministry. Romans 15, where we spent time on this morning with Paul, the key results that led him to the fact that there was no place left in Romans 15 for him to work in those regions are, again, the fields Jerusalem to Illyricum have been engaged, the gospel fully proclaimed, the Gentiles demonstrating obedience of word and deed, churches formed by Acts chapter 20, the end of the third journey, and for that matter, he had a, a teams of provincial leaders that were cross-pollinated and in the midst of all those five key result areas he's writing no place left 
So a little bit of our journey just to under, unpack and, and understand those five uh, parts of a church planning movement plan, entry, gospel, discipleship, church formation, and leadership multiplication. We see those across the breadth of Scripture. Now how do we communicate them? How do we present those to people, kingdom agents, that we intend to mobilize and to push out, and for that matter, in their ministry, to come to balance in the kingdom so that by forming New Testament churches and leaders, they could ultimately go out and multiply something that can be healthy and sustainable. So to communicate that, we wrestled with different diagrams, different paradigms, ways to describe it. We came to, with the need for orality in our fields, in our areas, we came to agriculture. In which case, all those illustrations Jesus gave concerning agriculture was a way for him to lock the truths of the kingdom into a a format that all peoples in all time, all cultures in all time of history could understand, that being a matter of sowing and reaping, agriculture. So we came to this diagram. I'll just draw it right here in the center. We call it the four fields of kingdom growth, okay? What it really comes to is that just as Jesus, just as Paul, our task, the task of the kingdom agent is to enter empty fields, new fields, to sow the seed of the gospel message. For that matter, steward sowers who were commanded to pray for who could go out and do the same thing. As the Holy Spirit gives life, that uncontrollable of the unknown doer in the kingdom parables, the one who gives life to the seed, causes it to grow. Their job is to nurture the new growth. The kingdom agent then also, that when the harvest is ripe, he also cuts that harvest puts the sickle in and bundles that harvest together into a New Testament church. Jesus forming community, Paul forming community, right? New Testament church. And of course, when we cut and bundle, the farmer has two things. Every, every culture, every time in history understands this, you have food for this season and you have seed for the next, in which case the process repeats itself and out of the harvest, everything needed for the next season flows forward. That seed that goes out. And in my mind and my thinking, that's the need to reproduce leaders who can go out season after season, empty field after empty field, and reproduce the whole process. The five parts of the church planning plan, entry, gospel, discipleship, church formation, leadership multiplication. You want to multiply and mobilize kingdom agents? Answer these questions for them. Where do I go? Who do I share with? What do I say? Gospel message. How do I, what do I do if they say yes? How do I make disciples? As disciples are made, how do we release? What is the New Testament organizational unit? It's the New Testament church. How do we form the church? And finally, how do we reproduce leaders who can do all those things? You answer those five questions among the kingdom agents and you've mobilized them. And for that matter, you've mobilized them into such a format that can roll over that they can actually maintain health and be sustainable in what they're up to. All right? So teach it from Mark 4, the kingdom parables. Teach it from any passage or, or any gospel as you see that across the, the ministry of Christ. Teach it from the book of Acts, the, the three journeys of Paul. Teach it from John 17. Teach it from Romans 15. I think it saturates as a paradigm the New Testament agenda, New Testament kingdom expansion. Is that fair? Is that all right? We spent the last day and a half talking about the realities. Most organizations 
in their history are founded out of one of these agendas. There's a lot of organizations out there. Typically, I don't, by no means is it a critique, but most of the human needs related or focused organizations typically have found their heart, found their passion in entry strategy, right? So that we would dig wells, so that we would start schools, so that we would figure out ways to enter and access open doors to new, sometimes creatively, new fields, engage new peoples. Of course, missiology, through anthropology and other things, have given us so many tools with worldview study and people group profiles, even the the UPG, UUPG research that goes on globally is really about defining and helping us most of the research globally on where the empty fields are. But realize knowing what we need to do, what our target should be, UPG, UUPG, a geography, a religion that may be untouched, is just the starting point. The question becomes, does Scripture give us answers for how we go about engaging them? The answer would be yes. So throughout the four fields training, it's a matter, hopefully, of discerning not just our best ideas for how to do entry, but how did Jesus enter empty fields? How did he mobilize his disciples to be a part and be involved in entry strategy, opening and and engaging new fields and new peoples? We have examples all throughout. Of course, you know that in the entry strategy field, typically, we've come down to one or two tools. We typically teach House of Peace from Luke chapter 10. And for that matter, when you find that man of peace, you're transitioning through them to their oikos, to their household. So that Luke chapter 10 being the passage we would use, 1 through 11 is sufficient there to see Jesus sending his disciples two by two ahead of him every town and place he himself was about to go. But it's interesting, he didn't just send laborers, 35 sets of two, he actually told them to pray for laborers, right? In which case he had in mind a generation that would roll out again. Luke 9 to 12, Luke 10, the 70 others. That leads us to into the book of Acts to people like Cornelius. Acts chapter 10, a man of peace that immediately gathers his oikos, his household. An entire new church begins when we Go from entry to oikos, a man of peace to an oikos, a family network that can immediately be gathered. That's where new churches begin. Crispus, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, all examples of the same pattern. The Lord leads to a person of peace, their oikos leads to a church start. So we start in that house of peace, that target. And of course, what do we do when we engage them? Just as Jesus instructed, we're going to share the good news. We're going to share the gospel message. So we typically... Teach John chapter 4 in this passage where Jesus, traveling through Samaria, what does he find? He finds a woman next to the well. That becomes his agenda. For that matter, when she believes that he's the Messiah, it becomes her agenda. Leaving her water jar, she goes back and tells the town all that, all that Christ has done and told her and asks the question, could he be the Christ? The fact is, he found a person of peace and through that person of peace called her whole circle of influence. And by the end of the chapter... They say to the woman, we don't just believe because of what you said. Now we know he's the Savior. So transition through an open door, local individual, to gather the whole community, right? Through that individual that was discovered. John chapter 4, what do we say? Just like the woman, we would teach and train personal testimony, gospel presentation. What do we do when I say yes? Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
Well, now we're into, okay, the question then becomes, what commands exactly would we introduce first in order to teach the habit of obedience? We don't have to guess, I don't believe. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. Just a few weeks later, as the Holy Spirit comes, 3,000 people believe and are baptized. Acts 2.41. And then in verse 43, 44, somewhere there, 42 perhaps, it actually says that the believers, those who've been baptized, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What were they teaching? Teaching the commands of Christ, right? In which case, George Patterson, who introduced the seven commands of Christ, all of those commands, what do we teach first? Acts chapter 2, obediences. Just as Jesus commanded them to obey and teach people to obey, Acts chapter 2, the apostles put their hand to that task, and you can see beginning discipleship, commands of Jesus being implemented immediately, being obeyed by those first believers in the Jerusalem churches as they met daily and house to house. In which case we have a menu for, and what we use, the seven commands of Christ, how to do beginning discipleship. Teaching them to obey from Acts chapter 2. Now interestingly, it's very interesting that we would also look to that passage to see the first churches. New Testament churches typically. In which case, you look back at those commands, those things that they were immediately obeying, that the apostles had taught them to observe, and you realize that baptism, Lord's Supper, repentance and faith, giving, going and discipling, teaching, evangelizing others, loving each other in fellowship, prayer, those things that they also are putting their hand to and observing are actually church function. In which case, the beginning discipleship scripted and menued for us by Acts chapter 2 is actually the road to healthy church as they implement, take up authorities and begin to track and to, and to obey those things corporately and individually, right? By chapter 13 of Acts, of course, they're also going out. So that if we just, just by implementing and, uh, and employing these simple tools, three passages where we began, Luke 10, John 4, Acts 2, we actually have the potential not only to mobilize, but to win and ultimately to gather in new communities, we have the potential to gather new church starts, right? Now, I made a very specific, I used a very specific term there. I used the word church start, okay? What I mean by church start is that from the beginning, as we engage empty fields, sow the seed, nurture the new growth, and form new church, new communities, new groups, we would refer to them as a church start. I put start in there intentionally because, because in fact, that community, that new group of believers, that Cornelius and his household may or may not think of themselves as church at this point. But as the church planter, as the kingdom agent, it's my expectation, nothing less than the New Testament principle, New Testament expectation, that they become church, that that is what Christ intends of them. So that we could look across the epistles, Paul's epistles, and realize there is never a letter written to a fellowship or a Bible study. Paul never wrote to a preaching point or a cell model, or for that matter, even sometimes when we put house onto the tag onto the front of church, house church, sometimes what we really mean is something less than successful, something less than the biblical standard. Wait a second. <clears throat> the Corinthians, for example, were a mess, but Paul called them what he expected them to be. 
Nobody would describe 1 Corinthians' letter as a healthy church, yet Paul's expectation is clear, 1-1, to the church of God in Corinth, in which case he's committed to see them become church. Church start is where we begin. Here is designated by a dotted line. This is a tool we're going to use when we get to church formation to ask ourselves, are they healthy? Are they tracking with Acts 2 function? Church start doesn't yet think of themselves as church. And so it's a dotted line in my diagram right here. But I intended to become church. In which case, we ask ourselves, what's the real crossover? What's the difference between a church start and a church? It's really identity. If they don't think of themselves as church, my expectation as of them as a church start is really limited to my vision. It needs to become their self-identity, right? Self-aware that they in fact are the church of God. In which case, Acts 2.41, in the midst of that Acts passage, the coming of the Holy Spirit is valuable. Those who believed were baptized And 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's one verse that says, as a starting point, the crossover from group to church, in my mind, believed the message, were baptized, and they knew who was in and who wasn't. Added to the number. Meaning, they thought of themselves as a group. They were committed to the number. Right? Both personally and by those apostles. So in my mind, you move from church start, my expectation of them, to church... as, their, as an identity when they think of themselves in that manner, when they self-identify. We are committed. We are the church. Now the reality is that doesn't yet make them healthy. So a third term that we typically use, church start, transition of identity, you've got a church, and yet there's the reality of church function in the rest of Acts 2. All of those seven commands, beginning discipleship, baptism, Lord's Supper, that lead us to be a healthy church. Church start, I expect them church they think of themselves healthy church now they're functioning according to the lord's expectation of them and of course every church over its lifespan comes in and out of health right that's true in acts chapter 2 by chapter 13 they should have been going right by chapter 8 they are scattered right by the lord something was lacking something that's true of my church in oklahoma for that matter in and out of health over its lifespan right So healthy church is always our goal. Now that's valuable because we intend for that group, that church, to go out and reproduce. So how do we go about tracking church health, tracking identity? Well, I've drawn a church start as, according to Acts 2.41, they self-identify, think of themselves as church. I'm actually going to fill that circle in. It's no longer dotted line. Now it's a solid circle. Ideally, this group is going to go out and also multiply, right? In which case, they're going to start to train and to send equip the leadership, equipping the saints to do the works of ministry. They'll be sent out and start new groups. But what about those church functions? How do we know what's being reproduced? Reproduction's our goal. But how do we know what's being reproduced is healthy? We go back to Acts 2 and the function. We ask ourselves, what were the functions of the first churches in Acts chapter 2? One of them was baptism, right? So in the oral context where I live, we don't use a lot of uh, written tools or words, different languages even in one training setting a lot of time. So what we do is assemble. When we put baptism, we write this little, these little waves, right? 
The idea there is that someone has been baptized. They've been practicing the ordinance of baptism. Now, typically, that's done by the initially that's done by the outsider, the church planner, who came and invested in those first believers with the gospel and gave baptism as they moved from field two to field three. But realize our goal is that the authority for baptism doesn't remain outside, held by the outside church planter. Instead, we want to see the authority for baptism move inside so that they're stewarding that ordinance even within their own authority. You with me? What other elements are there? How about Lord's Supper? Most likely, the first time they take Lord's Supper is going to be stewarded by the outsider, the church planner who's come and helped them get started. Ultimately, we want them to take up that authority and that authority, as we believe, purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ is that they should steward that Lord's Supper internally and the authority for that Lord's Supper within the body. So we want to see that element move inside. Giving. Now giving, remember, don't be fooled by a dollar sign. Giving is so much more than just dollars, right? They're one anothering each other. They're loving. They're providing. They're feeding each other. They're clothing each other, caring for the sick, whatever. Ultimately, we're going to teach them about giving, but we want and decide, help them make decisions about how that should be used, stewarded. We're going to show them biblical patterns, but ultimately we want the decision for giving and how that offering is used to move inside into one of the stewardships of that local church, which case it'd be facilitated outside. But the goal is that corporately they're deciding and they're being empowered to steward and use their own gift, their own giving for the sake of kingdom expansion. We could put a number of different tools here. From Acts chapter 2, we also recognize there were local leaders. So when we map out church planting and a church planting network, we want to know the location of that church start. We want to know the year it was started. We want to know the name of that local leader. And we want to see, ultimately, we're going to use the T for T process of accountability, new teaching practice, and planning commissioning to move those church functions, introduce them first of all, but ultimately move those authorities into that local church so that what is built and what is laid as a foundation can actually be something that ultimately and long term is reproducible and healthy so that as they go out and begin to multiply, those authorities, those functions would follow down and stream down that church planting stream to the point that we could get to generations of new church starts, right? Ultimately, all those church functions vested at every generation, and we've got a healthy, sustainable movement. Okay? And a healthy church is the functions are all happening. Church based on identity, healthy church is Acts 2 function, Acts 13 function, vested with full authority locally. I believe that's the case. And guys, that's missiology from the beginning. That's Vin and Anderson, that's Nevius, that they're self-governing, they're self-propagating, they're self-correcting, you know, they're self-supporting. Those four selves that we celebrate, those are actually, what they amount to is just the stewardship of Acts 2 function. So those tools are given to us, recorded for us in Acts 2, when they're rightly stewarded by that local church, not dependent on someone outside to steward those things for them or provide those things for them, we've got the Nevius principle. We've got it at every generation. 
is sustainable. It's in fact can be indigenous and take on a momentum beyond that original church planner and catalyst's vision and voice. That's why fourth generation is so valuable. When we start to talk about movement of church planting, what we're really, we, we often throw out the 2-2-2 principle that 2 Timothy 2-2, Paul told Timothy to entrust what he had said in the Prince of Many Witnesses to reliable men who also be qualified to teach others. So Paul, Timothy, reliable men, others, you got fourth generation. When we track movement and how do we actually get to multiplying movement that carries its own momentum, fourth generation is almost like a tipping point for us. When you have 2 Timothy 2.2, that 2.2.2 principle is really Paul, Timothy, reliable men, and others. By the time you get to fourth generation, typically the, the network, the momentum can outlast the exit of the initial Paul, be that death or be that his own need to go to Spain. There's momentum internally that can outlive the original vision caster, the original catalyst. That's why Paul could write to Timothy and say, carry on without me, right? Of course, he was in prison. There you go. One other reality. The fact is then, as you're starting to see church formation take place, the reset button in the kingdom, what I mean by that, quickly, you've got your target in the kingdom. That's your stewardship, empty fields. You've got the engine of movement, which is gospel seed sowing, something this organization has been known for, for since its beginning, Right? You've got the roots of movement, which is healthy, ongoing, deep discipleship, life-on-life discipleship. And you've got, if you will, the reset button in the kingdom. You realize that the New Testament church, when we employ those four selves, when we describe the distinctives of a New Testament church, realize everything needed for accountability, for vision, for shepherding, member care, everything needed for resourcing, and for that matter, authority ought to be vested right here in the New Testament church. When it is, when those things are vested right here, this becomes possible. This becomes potentially healthy. And so you get to generations that roll out. Now, one of the realities then, that fifth part, after we talk about church formation, is leadership multiplication. How do we multiply leaders with that vision and that voice that can go out and reproduce this entire process? That's it, by the way, in the kingdom parables, that's exactly what Jesus is up to from the very beginning. He's casting vision for among the disciples that they will go and do even after he's gone. They will be like the man who goes out into the field and sows a seed night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. First the blade, then the head, then the full grain. When the time comes, he puts the sickle to it. Because the harvest has come. He's saying to his disciples, hey guys, watch this. I'm going to show you this for the next two years. I'm like a man who's going to go out in Galilee and do these things. And ultimately, Jesus is going to entrust his disciples, those leaders he's multiplied, to go do the same thing. So a lot of movement, two major principles, a lot of movement rises and falls based on autonomy and health of that local reset button, the New Testament church. It also rises and falls on the ability to push out and multiply leaders who can do the same thing. Sent by local churches, accountable, I believe, to local churches. And organizations, E3, other organizations exist ultimately to perpetuate those agents, push them out, to perpetuate this process so that everything's built in, 
everything moves forward in a healthy way.